Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode six of Wake Up Call. We've got a great show for you today. Um, if you're watching this on YouTube, you'll notice that our surroundings look a little bit different. This is because Milda and I um, have just moved back to university. I mean, in my case, moved back to Montreal. Uh, this is my new apartment. And uh, Milda is in The Hague in her new apartment. Yeah, uh, I've moved for the first time in my life, actually. So this is a huge change for me, but I'm in the capital of diplomacy and justice and uh, politics, so it's really nice. It really fits the theme of our podcast. Right, isn't the International Criminal Court or something in, uh, in The Hague? Yeah, yeah, exactly, it is. Would you look at that? Also, um, I would like to share some personal news, not for myself, but for Milda. As Milda mentioned uh, during the recording of last week episode of last week's episode, she was competing at the World uh, Schools Debating Championships, and she actually did really well there. And she won the number one speaker in the English as a foreign language category. And her team, Team Lithuania, took the number one team in the English as a foreign language category. Um, so they did really well. So I just wanted to shout out my partner for that. She did a really great job. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for saying this because I hate bragging about myself, <laughs> like my work. Hey, if I brag for you, it doesn't count. <laughs> yeah, I'm so proud of my team and it's been a wonderful journey. If anyone has the chance to debate, I highly, highly recommend it. Yeah, so today, this week, these two weeks, we have an episode for you that is about democracy. Uh, we're going to go really in-depth about it, uh, talk about the pros, the cons, and the possible solutions to the issues that we see in our democratic systems today. And we also have an amazing guest. Vishwa, do you want to tell about them? Yeah, uh, their name is Pearson Singbil Montgomery. They are... Uh the president of uh, the Green Party of Manitoba and a member of the National Council of the Green Party of Canada. Uh, representing a smaller party, they provide a unique perspective into partisanship and the role of parties within democracy and just the functioning of democracy as a whole. So that's going to be uh, a really great segment. You should stick around for that. Yeah, and I guess without any further ado, then we can move into talking about the different types of democracies to kind of get the ball rolling and talk about democracy as a term, because I feel like it's very broad and might be confusing depending on which part of the world you live in. So first of all, I guess let's talk about the democracies that most of us, at least watching this podcast, probably live in. That is representative democracies. So a representative democracy is basically an indirect democracy in which sovereignty is held by the people's representatives. And we have two types of democracies that fall into this category. I mean, we have more, but I'm going to talk about two today. So we have liberal democracies where basically we protect the individual's right to property. We follow the rule of law, you know, and this looks like the majority of Europe, which has multi-party systems where parties then in parliament have to make coalitions to like kind of implement laws and lobby for them. But we also have liberal democracies as like a dominant party system, which we see in the United States. And this is where the question for me arises, like, 
is it a democracy if I have two choices, like as a United States citizen, to really choose from? And I would argue that it's it's really it's really problematic because even in a multi-party system in Europe and like Lithuania, even I feel like we have to choose between the lesser evil because no party really fully represents us, and usually politicians are like so far from the like general citizen and what they're feeling like and what they need, and when you have to pick between two parties, it becomes even harder and obviously polarization and then partisanship arises from that. Yeah. Um, and I think that's um, just one of the ways in which parties break down what representative democracy really should be about. Um, especially in Canada, it's very rare to see your local member of parliament that is supposed to technically be your representative to Ottawa it's very rare to see them do anything other than toe the party line tightly. They're very not concerned about their constituents and things like that. And there's a, there's a cartoon I saw in uh, Canadian politics once, uh, just reading the newspaper, and it said, we no longer send a representative to Ottawa like we were intended to. Ottawa sends a representative to us, uh, which I thought was an extremely powerful line. And it talks... and it. It really gets to the core of what you're saying, Milda, about um, one of the problems when representative democracy doesn't do what it's supposed to do and leads to partisanship, you really no longer have a say in your local issues. The whole idea behind having these different electoral districts and offices and things like that is so that, okay, like our concerns as members of this community um, in this area that are within the purview of the national government or provincial government, we need them representative. We need them represented, and we need you to be talking about this. Um, and I know we love using America as a bad example on this show. Um, unpopular opinion here. But um, I think America does a better job than most countries when it comes to this. If you look at the recent climate deal that was passed in America that, you know, was, you know... The Inflation Reduction Act, but really it's one of the most transformative uh, climate deals ever done. Um, if you look at why it took so long to get that passed, it was because each senator within the Democratic caucus was saying, look, what's in it for my state? I need some provisions so that, you know, some industry is brought into my state so that um, some, you know, radical economic transformation is brought into my state. I think one of the key examples of this was Joe Manchin from West Virginia. Say what you will about Joe Manchin and his politics. He is very concerned about the people of his state and making sure that, you know, they are doing well economically. So I think that parties are not, by definition, vessels that, um, that can hinder the power of representative democracy. But once they become so centralized and under the control of one person and having it be a singular ideology, then uh, we get that breakdown in democracy. Yeah, for sure. I think those are brilliant points and I agree. Um, so to move on, uh, there's another type of democracy that we have a lot and that has been on the rise in the world because of these issues that we just talked about, and that is illiberal democracies, which are basically a more authoritarian way to look at 
uh, governing a country. We see these in Hungary. You can listen about that in our third episode, I think, about the far right. We see this in Russia, of course, where basically there are no power, there's no like limits, no power, no accountability on the people who are elected, quote unquote. Um, yeah. And uh, the last type of democracy that I wrote down is a presidential democracy that is maybe more rare, but it is, for example, in the United States, it's in Nigeria, where the president has more power uh, to do actions as a legitimate like governing body. Uh, so yeah, so so the president in this way leads an executive branch that is separate from the legislative branch. So we could also talk about the pros and cons of that, but I think I'll give the mic to Vishva to continue what he has to say. Yeah, I think that democracy is at this constant trade-off between freedom and actually people having a say and action. I, I, one of the reasons why parties aren't terrible is that, like, like it or not, they can rally a broad coalition of people together and actually get their agendas passed. Whereas if you have a whole bunch of independents or like 30 different parties like you see in Israel uh, with these elaborate coalitions based on certain conditions and whatnot, by trying to please everyone, you're going to end up just at an absolute deadlock. This is what a lot of people say about America. I think that personally, American democracy is structured very, very intelligently in the sense that no single unit has all the power. It's evenly distributed and you can't get things passed without the approval of the president, the House of Representatives, and the Senate. Like These are big legislative um, oversight bodies and if they're at odds each with each other, it, it basically limits the individual power of each of these um, sections on their own. Um, but that being said, this is why it takes so long for legislation to be passed in America. It's so easy to stall this legislation for partisan interests. Republicans do this all the time. They wouldn't even let a Supreme Court justice be nominated for one year. But when the Republicans had control of the House um, the Senate and uh, the presidency, they were able to rush a Supreme Court candidate through in one month. Um, I don't know. I just think that it's it's basically what people are willing to deal with. It's the trade-off for getting things done is freedom. You can't you can't put more restrictions on the democratic state and um, and uh, sorry. When you put more restrictions on the democratic state and the power that they have to pass legislation and make laws, that means that you are going to have more freedom, but you're also going to have more um, restraint on, on the power of the presidency and, and the state, and they're not going to be able to get things done fast. If you put less restrictions and basically let them do whatever they want, you threaten to marginalize your freedom and your democracy by not putting caps on what they can and cannot do in what time period. Yeah, I mean, this is the, the constant dilemma that I also have. For example, I'm so mad that like, we probably will never get um, radical climate action to prevent the disasters of climate change because we live in a democracy and because a lot of people simply don't care or we have lobbyist groups which cannot profit from these policies. 
But on the other hand, yeah, uh, I think you bring up good points. But like speaking more generally about this, I think we have been just so accustomed from when we are born to the idea that we do not get a direct say. We choose people that tell what we should live and, and how we should live by. So I think that also we should be changing these sort of narratives. And this is uh, what's been happening in, in more Scandinavian countries. For example, in, in, uh, in there's this Danish party called the Danish Alternative Alter Party. Alternative party, basically. Yeah, whatever. But basically, they're advocating for a more deep democracy, a more participatory democracy, which means that every citizen actually gets a say in decision making. And I think that this might be the future for many countries to come if they want to fix the flaws of democracy. This looks like, uh, you know, having some sort of citizen assemblies, I would I would guess, uh, hearing the wisdom of the minority, hearing the voices of everyone, and having citizens participate individually, even if they do not have the most extensive knowledge or are not experts in that sphere, but giving them the power to mold their own lives, uh, I think this might be the future, maybe. Just like it was in ancient Greece, you know, direct democracy, maybe we're coming back to the past because it actually works in some way. I mean, I love that idea in theory, but the issue is um, is that I just simply don't think that the average citizen is politically engaged enough or has the time to be politically engaged enough uh, to do that, which is extremely unfortunate um, because I guess that because we don't have the time to deal with politics, we hand our power over to a bunch of random people um, every few years and say, okay, uh, do as you will without any means of making sure that they actually are doing it. Yeah, I think this is what we can also talk about with our guests today, uh, to talk about more regional democracies, more community shaping and how communities might be more sovereign to rule over themselves. But this is, of course, just an idea floating in the air and it's quite hard to conceptualize it and kind of think of how it would actually work in practice, of course. Yeah, a lot of these conversations about democracy tend to get a little bit high-minded and uh, and then esoteric and and things like that. But I think in the end, it's it's a very it's a very simple concept, right? We need to say, look, how do we get people to have the, like the word democracy comes from demos and kratos, which means the people and power. It literally means the powers in the hands of people. And we have all these debates about, you know, in, in Canada, we, we discuss, oh, is our electoral system even even fair? Because what happens is in Canada, there's three major parties. Let's say um, the Liberal Party gets 35% uh, of the vote, the Conservatives get 30% of the vote, and the rest goes to the NDP. The Liberal Party would still take that seat, even though the majority of people within that constituency didn't choose them. So, so now we're having conversations about, do we want to do rank choice voting? Do we want to do proportional representation? And this conversation was open in Canada for a long time. Uh, in 2015, Justin Trudeau, I, I mean, I credit his, his victory based on two things, the legalization of marijuana, which he did follow through on, and electoral reform, which he didn't follow through on. Um, and I don't blame him because if the system works for him and got him in power, 
why would he change that system? You know, it's it's this inherent conflict that we're that we're entrusting the people that most benefit from a system that may not have the most give us the most power. We're asking those people to change the system that got them to that place in the first place. It's it's just an it's just such an inherent conflict that just messes up your mind. Um so so yeah, I just wanted to I just wanted to touch on that that I think that we should look for systems that have very simple goals. How do we put how do we give the voter the most power possible while remaining like realistic? Yeah, what you talked about also the same happens in Lithuania. Like right now the one of the biggest uh, one of the most popular, I guess, parties, the Freedom Party, that has that is a new party, that is a liberal party with like, um, you know, a lot of talks about minorities and gay rights and stuff like that, and also legalization of drugs. They they won, I guess, seats in parliament because of all of these promises and because of having this pompous sort of image of being the Freedom Party but they didn't free anything actually. So <laughs> I'm just wondering, will that ever happen? And, you know, just because voters are so unengaged and like bored with politics and kind of don't have the time, they usually vote for these parties, which seem exciting and which promise things, but then politicians don't actually follow up because of the way our democracies work. Yeah, and um, I don't know, I feel like we we complain so much about the way that our system works and and there's literally nothing that we can do to fix it pretty much ever like unless we elect someone that shares the same beliefs but if that person gets elected then why would what what incentive do they have to change uh that system in and of itself like um in the past two elections in 2019 and 2021 uh the governing party of Canada like actually lost the popular vote like the conservatives and even in 2016 Donald Trump lost the popular vote um in America which meant that most Canadians wanted someone else and more Canadians wanted the conservatives to lead the country than the liberals but i mean of course you have to take into account where those people uh, are located um, and things like that. There's just all these factors that you need to take into account. You can't have tyranny of the majority. You need to make sure that each region gets an appropriate voice um, in in legislature. So I was wondering in Lithuania how how you structured um, like the the seats in parliament. Is it is it by region or do you just vote for the party and they it's proportional. We just vote for the party, yeah, it's proportional. Like, uh, I guess it's quite easier than in Canada, probably, because Lithuania is a lot smaller and has a smaller population overall. So I guess we don't, there's no need really, I feel like, for for, for the separation of regions. But yeah, in Lithuania, parties make coalitions. Then there's kind of these two opposing forces and they, you know, yeah, that's how it happens. Then how do you, how do you get, um like local representation nationally yeah well it's a it's a hierarchical system i suppose we still have regions we still have municipalities with their mayors with their governors uh which then sort of talk to the national government of course i guess that's how it works in many countries it's the same thing interesting so you don't actually have um at least i mean what we have in canada in theory but you don't have a representative 
nationally that is for your community or your neighborhood or or your town i i don't want to be wrong you see because <laughs> i feel like it's very complicated i mean we have mayors of cities i see okay but like i'm not sure how they how they merge in the whole national system interesting because in canada it's very it's very separated it's like there's the federal government which is like at the top and what you do is for example my riding is my um constituency is winnipeg south center so then winnipeg south center has its own election and there's you know four or five candidates on the slate there's the you know conservative liberal ndp green party and independent or whatever that are just uh, on the slate and in that election the people of that neighborhood vote for who they want to send to Ottawa to be their local representative and that person would be the mem would be a member of the larger party uh so even Justin Trudeau he's prime minister but he is also the elected representative for a riding in eastern Montreal he's also the like local representative so basically whoever has the most people on their side gets to be the prime minister. The leader of the party with the most people that got elected gets to be the prime minister. Um, and again, as I mentioned earlier, the problem with that is in a lot of these uh, like local mini elections that you have um, that we call the national election, people that don't get a majority of votes will end up in Ottawa, despite the vast majority of people in that neighborhood voting for someone else. And then provincially, we have the same thing. So the province of Manitoba is divided up into however many pieces, and each of those uh, communities has its own election to vote who they send to the Manitoba legislature. And then in municipally, it gets a little bit different because you vote both for your mayor and for your city councillor. Uh, so your city councillor is your local representative, and the mayor is like the overarching representative but they're very separate like they do talk to each other but for example manitoba voted mostly liberal in the national election but we have a conservative provincial government it's really interesting and and i, I have no idea how regular citizens catch up with all of this information and, i know and it's a lot it. yeah <laughs> which is why adding more elections and things like that and having these direct democracies and referendums on individual laws like I just, I don't know how people are going to keep up with it. They have work, they have kids. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that is the end of the alarm. Um, and we will see you soon in the guest discussion. All right. So we have on the show now our special guest. Uh, their name is Pearson Singbeal Montgomery. They are a member of the Federal Council of the Green Party of Canada and the president of the Green Party of Manitoba. Thank you so much for coming on, Pearson. Yeah, thank you. Uh, great to see you guys. And uh, thanks for uh, asking me to, to join you on your show today. To start off, uh, we just wanted to get your opinion on what is the role of parties in politics? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a broad question, um, for sure. <laughs> so... You know, I guess I can start with, you know, sort of what parties are right now. Um, you know, our, our political systems in most parts of the world are sort of built around 
um, having political parties. And, you know, at a, at a surface level, it kind of makes sense. I mean, like people tend to sort of align with different schools of thoughts or um, different sort of groups of ideas. It sort of, it sort of allows people to sort of, um, well, exactly that, group together based on their ideas. But, you know, I, I would say the effect of that is, you know, un unfortunately not, you know, not, not quite as admirable in that, um, you know, political parties are often um, fairly restrictive in terms of, you know, their ideologies, the way they work, the way they sort of promote their ideas and um, the ideas that actually, um, you know, when that party does, if they do um, become government, um, the way those ideas um, become laws, if ever. Um, so, you know, unfortunately, a, a lot of people have the experience that they, they join a political party and they find, oh, their, their voice isn't empowered or, um, you know, there, there isn't even a platform for them to, to share their voice or um, a lot of political parties suffer from um, factionalization where um, be because it's built off of this really broad kind of ideology that everyone's sort of supposed to fit in. And then there's these sort of upper executives at the top in most political parties who set the um, year to year um, you know, political standpoints. Odds are there's a lot of people in any given political party that disagree with the party line. And the expectation in, in traditional parties is very much um, that, that you just kind of suck it up and um, accept that and, you know, go out and um, uh, fight, fight in the streets, basically every day, door to door, um, shilling for your party. So what do you see as the, the fundamental problem underlying um, democracy in Canada in particular? You know, like anything, it's a, it's a very multifaceted um, thing. But, you know, we, we have a system where, you know, for a very long time, we had, you know, two main political forces, two main political parties. Um, and, you know, they're, they're very well established in this country, both in terms of supporters and culturally and ideologically. Um, they, they are um, cor cornerstones of this, this country. And yeah, I guess for anyone in other countries, I refer to the liberals and the, the conservatives in this case. Um, not, not always called that. They've gone through a couple of uh, restructurings and uh, rebrandings over the years, but fundamentally they remain the same. Um, and, and we get to this um, sort of situation where, you know, election after election, um, people vote in one and they think, oh, this is going to be great. They're good. They have all these wonderful ideas. And then four years go by, um, that party um, breaks almost all of their promises, does a pretty genuine, terrible job of running the country, and everyone hates them, and then decides to vote for the opposite party, <laughs> which proceeds to do the exact same things over the next four years. Um, so, so we get this sort of perpetual cycle of, you know, inaction and um, di electoral disappointment. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, we have an electoral system that really benefits those two larger parties. And, 
you know, punishes not only smaller parties, but voters who vote for those parties. Um, because, because you're, and, and especially for independent candidates, actually, because your, your vote really only counts once, for example, for one. Um, so, so, you know, if I'm to vote for the NDP or the Greens or an independent candidate, um, you know, there's a chance that most of the people in my riding will vote for that candidate, um, or, you know, more likely than not, people will think, oh, these smaller parties have less resources. Um, you know, they, they're small, they, they aren't going to form government. And I really, really hate that one big party. So I just have to vote for the other one. Um, and that's what you see riding and riding across Canada. And it, it solidifies the power in, in these two big parties. Um, that in many ways are, you know, not ideologically, but um, functionally very similar. Um, you know, they, they don't really achieve things um, that are, you know, really big or substantive. They um, make a lot of promises and then proceed to break them. And then they leave the entire country disappointed and then looking for options. But um, because of the way the system is set up, um, other smaller um, options that could be better aren't able to um, sort of materialize, um, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, so something we wanted to also ask you, what we talked about with Vishva before you came on the show, is having these sort of smaller communities that are more self-governing, that are able to implement changes that they directly want, uh, rather than through a certain representative or having more referendums, for example, to also give more power uh, to the citizens to keep politicians accountable. But a problem that we kind of uh, gathered is that people are overall very busy and they're obviously usually not very interested in politics or do not have this big wish to become involved. How do you think we should solve this issue? Well, first of all, I would address that, you know, I think a major, major part of people's, you know, disinterest or apathy towards politics is that idea that it is static, that it, um, you know, either maintains the status quo or just perpetuates the worsening of things. And, you know, people don't want to get involved in it because they, they don't see a path to be a path to improvement through politics. And I, I do very much think that, um, you know, really meaningful systemic change, um, you know, would be beneficial to, to building up that interest because I think fundamentally everyone cares about the community they live in, you know, and everyone has ideas about, you know, how, how one thing or another should be. And I don't, I don't think everyone needs to be involved in, you know, every single aspect of the running of their community. Like, you know, you don't need to show up to every uh, zoning hearing or um, water and waste um, appeals board, uh, you know, any given thing, like, but everyone has an interest um, in something. And when there's something going on in your community that is wrong or is, um, you know, not what the people of that community want, um, pe people do get angry and, or they get upset or they, 
they, they have feelings about it. Or if something is deteriorating in their community, um, you know, people do really have an aspiration to um, make things better. So um, one of the questions that's sort of a follow-up to that is how we can integrate those local issues like you're talking about, like kitchen table issues, lifestyle issues that are very, not even just municipal, but community focused. How do we uh, ah, integrate that into the municipality level, into the regional level, uh, into the national level, and even the international level when we're dealing with, with bigger picture issues? For example, I mean, as a member of the Greens, I'm, I'm sure you're extremely concerned about climate change. That's not something that we can deal with as, as localized individual communities. These require a lot of broad-based actions, international diplomacy, et cetera, et cetera. How do we ensure democracy remains through that? And it's not just a group of technocrats controlling the direction in which we're headed. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll start with that sort of, you know, climate change. It's, it's a really big issue, but, you know, and, and this is kind of something, you know, you'll hear me say time and time again, and is really central to my ideology is that, you know, nothing is just one thing, right? Like yeah. everything is a very multifaceted, multi-level uh, issue. So, um, I mean, you're absolutely right. Climate change is, you know, probably the biggest problem of our time. Um, but um, as you say, you know, the, 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 the cause of that um, crisis um, really is something that is beyond us. It is, you know, sort of these, um, you know, as, as a result of sort of our... Um, well, my, my position would be as a result of our um, sort of economic forces. We, we've allowed uh, cert, certain, um, you know, cer certain people in power to control a very damaging resource and a very damaging industry um, in a way that they have such a sway on um, the powers throughout our world. Um, so that that's a really difficult thing to deal with, right? Because you know the the oil industry and the fossil fuel industry and other environmentally damaging industries are really really entrenched in the power structures of our um, of our world. And like like you say, the individual person um, really can't do anything about it because you know they're just as reliant on those systems as anyone else. You know, pe people can say, oh, uh, I'll try and. Uh, um, you know, use less oil. But, you know, if you live in a city that is, um, you know, built, you know, strictly and solely for people in cars um, and has a terrible or non-existent transit system, um, you don't really have the option of um, using less fossil fuels. So it re really, like you say, it does sort of go back to that international level. Thank you so much, Pearson. Uh, yeah, for your for your brilliant input. I think we can all agree, uh, as we uh, me and Vishva talked earlier, also that we definitely need to empower people more. We need to have more um, empowerment in a very local level. We have to keep politicians more accountable, so we could uh, have a better system and a better political future for everyone.
Thank you so much for coming on the show. All right, uh, welcome to The Rant. This is a section where we get to rant about whatever we want. Whatever is troubling us, whatever is something that we feel passionate about, anything we want in the sphere of politics. Milda, what are you ranting about today? So I'm going to follow up on the topic of democracy and I'm going to talk about why voting should not be a right. Um, to start off, I just want to say why I chose this topic. So I read a book last year uh, by Jason Brennan. It's called Against Democracy. I would definitely highly recommend to read it to anyone who's interested in politics or democracy. He also has a lot of other good books, which are about like, what does a good citizen look like? What are the duties of citizens? So he's a good person to read if you want to rack your brain a little bit. But also before starting off, because this will be a bit radical, like all of my rants, I want to say that these ideas are not mine. And I'm not saying that we should all be living in dictatorships right now. No, I'm just saying that democracies have many issues and we should be thinking about how to solve them. And this is one possible way to solve those issues. So I hope that you just think about that and, and gain knowledge from it. Okay, so first of all, of course, as with any topic, we have to identify the problem. What is the biggest problem in my eyes with democracies is that people are extremely uneducated. And let me give you a couple of pictures of how that looks like. For example, in the United States, in like election years, most citizens cannot identify a single congressional candidate in their district, okay? Statistics also show that Americans generally don't know which party controls Congress. So Americans could like flip a coin and have a higher chance of getting the right answer and they still cannot tell the answer to this question. Um, during the, for example, during the 2000 uh, year election, although like slightly more than half of all Americans knew that Al Gore was like more liberal than Bush, they did not really seem to understand what the word liberal meant. For example, 57% of them knew that Gore favored the higher spending levels than Bush, but significantly less than half uh, knew that Gore was actually more supportive of abortion rights, welfare state programs, favored greater aid, or uh, aid to black people, or favored environmental regulation. But also, even then, you know, it is not enough for you to be able to vote if you just know the definition of a liberal or if you know about a certain politician, that is not enough. I think in order for a person to have an informed vote, they have to understand the basics of politics and economics, you know, understand where the national budget is spent today. Imagine how realistic a certain implementation of policies is and stuff so that they wouldn't vote for populists on like fake promises and stuff. They also have to understand foreign relations between their country and other countries, take into account the latest world's events, etc. and etc. So what happens then is when we allow everyone to vote, no matter of their knowledge, no matter of their um, input into politics, we sort of empower the uninformed voters to influence other citizens. Then, as a nation, of course, we elect uh, politicians who have the emotional intelligence of like five-year-olds or who are populists who never fulfill their promises. And then this becomes extremely problematic 
because even I, even if I was an, a very informed voter, I have the majority of uninformed voters putting their power on me and basically deciding my life and my country's policies against my will. And I think this is very problematic, right? So the, the main issue then, I think, is a more philosophical question that I want to ask to all of the leaders of Western liberal democracies. And it is, why do we care so much about like the value of democracy if it produces such inefficient results? I feel like we should be looking at political systems overall more as tools to get where we want to get rather than as symbols, like some kind of poem or something that's beautiful in theory, but not in practice. So like if a knife cuts well, it's a good knife, right? Uh, it's a valuable knife, it's a valuable tool. That is the same way we should be looking at democracies. We should not be looking at democracies as a symbolic thing that is very nice, of course, we should be representing everyone, but at what cost, you know, we should be always weighing the pros and cons of this. So I feel like when we start treating political systems as these tools to just govern a state and govern citizens, we will actually become more open-minded to change our political systems as a whole. So then establish these problems. What does Jason Brennan propose as a solution to these issues? He proposes epistocracy as a political system. So let me tell you a bit more about it. Epistocracy generally comes in many forms and is essentially the rule of the knowledgeable. In an epi epistocracy, the right to vote would be seen as like a license that a person must gain when if he wants to vote. You see, just as having like a driver's license requires to get, have knowledge, to pass tests, to have lessons, to avoid harming pedestrians or other people on the road, right? Just as one must acquire like a medical license to operate on people. So I think that is the same way citizens who want to vote, who have huge power to influence how their country's politics will develop, also have to be knowledgeable and also have to be informed if they want the license or the right to vote. So in an epistocracy, they might give everyone one vote and then give additional votes to people who pass this test of basic political knowledge. They also might, for example, only grant votes to citizens who pass such a test. So then the main question is, how do we make this test? How do we make sure that the test is objective and is not made by self-interested political parties. Well, one of the solutions the author proposes is to basically allow a democratic choice of the content of the qualification exam. The idea here is that voters can be competent to answer the easy question of like who makes a good voter, even if they're not competent to actually answer the hard questions about international trade and like immigration policy. I feel like it's the same way how people can actually identify uh, good, healthy traits of a romantic partner, but are not able to actually apply those same standards in their own life, right? Another way, another possible solution is simply to give citizens a citizenship test or a constitution exam. This is more of a deterrence mechanism, I feel like, to get rid of the voters who are just uninformed about parties or who are, who are lazy to study about politics. Because, you know, even if you introduce a constitutional exam, it's still an exam, you still have to study for it. A lot of people are lazy and that's why less people will, would vote in the system overall.
So then, of course, you might say, but look, what about the people who are disadvantaged? What about the people who don't have the opportunity to learn for this exam and stuff like that? Well, the author says that if it turns out that vulnerable minorities are actually the vast majority of people who do not take this test or who fail this test in this epistocracy, that doesn't necessarily mean that epistocracy is sending some kind of racist or classist message. Rather, it shows that there is some sort of underlying injustice in society that we should rather try to correct, right? And let us also remember that it's not like democracy inherently signals some sort of dignity and empowerment. Because in a democracy, Black people, for example, have the right to vote, right? But their living conditions are worse than in some sort of hypothetical world where they might not have the right to vote, but all the people who can vote are pro- uh, or are like anti-racist or pro-Black supportive policies and stuff like that. Because <laughs> currently, also some statistics that are fun, more than half of white Americans believe that white and Black people in the United States earn the same amount of money, when in fact, the average white er uh, person earns twice as much. So you see, this systematic misinformation obviously affects how people make their decisions, what kind of politicians they vote for, what you know, where do they want to see their tax uh, money spent and all of that. And another big, big, I feel like, uh, benefit to an epistocracy is that political candidates will have to try a lot more uh, to create intelligent campaigns to actually not be populist on fake promises, but actually create policies that are smart and that knowledgeable people who know about politics would want to vote for. So we get rid of all of the uninformed politicians who run for office. To end this rant, I just want to say that, of course, epistocracies will not work everywhere, just like democracies don't work everywhere. And I'm not saying that the system will not have its drawbacks. It obviously would when implemented in practice. But also, we should still consider whether the social, economic, and political challenges are solved by putting certain band-aids on democracy like we're doing right now, or uh, are they solved by attacking the root of the issue, which is democracy in and of itself. So that's it. Wow, Milda, you just seem to outdo yourself with um, controversy um, every single time. Um, I do, I think, at the core, have just a fundamental uh, disagreement with the thesis of 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 this argument, um, and and it goes like it goes like this. I just think that um, while in theory maybe there are you know some voters that deserve to vote and some that don't just based on their information, by removing the agency and um, the right of people to vote, removing their 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 franchise, what you do is you tend to make the government even more elite than before. Because if you look at the people uh, that, you know, have the time in their day to study for this exam, they're not the people that are working two jobs to feed their family. They're not the people that are, you know, working hard hours, taking care of an elderly loved one, etc., etc. Um, they're not the people that are, that are truly struggling to make ends meet and are are suffering as a result of certain government policies. 
And by creating a barrier to entry for these people who disproportionately happen to be um, people of color, uh, lower income people, et cetera, et cetera, you create the, uh, I mean, already the government is, is, is rather elitist and serves corporate and, and, and wealthy interests. But what you do is I think that you, that you, that you further that. So my question for you is how would you make these sort of barriers to entry uh, equitable, accessible, and um, meant so that they can't be rigged by people in power to exclusively promote their interests? Yeah, I think you bring up a brilliant critique, and I also definitely see this, uh, just like how, I don't know, uh, probably the rich uh, white families in the States hire tutors for their kids because it's like, you know, it's uh, embarrassing if they don't pass their SATs perfectly, just like they would probably hire tutors to pass this exam in this kind of system, right? So I do see this happening. Um, nevertheless, I think, of course, if we would implement the system, we would need a lot more political education that is easily accessible to people on a regular basis, uh, irrespective of their income, irrespective of their age, etc. So I think this would look like uh, classes on political issues in schools or even just like apps on your phone, whatever the te technologies allow. But obviously a lot more education would be needed in people's lives for them to be educated enough to have this right to vote. So this is one possible solution. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so now we're going to move on into Vishwas' rant. It's very interesting what he has today for us. All right, I'm gonna be talking about universities. This entire topic, um, a lot of it, uh, a lot of the credit and a lot of the facts and a lot of the arguments I make Credit has to go to Rob Maroney, a uh, friend of the show, good friend of mine. Um, and he's someone that's very passionate about the subject and completely changed the perspective on how I looked at university. Now, I've always seen university as something that I had to do. This was basically a prerequisite of life. After you are done high school, you need to go to university. And I know that many people often feel that this is the same way. It's the logical stepping stone. The issue is that was not always the case and life might have been better off when that wasn't the case. Now we hear a lot of arguments about the case for free universities, the case for cheaper universities, student loan forgiveness, etc., etc., to allow the opportunity for uni university education to more people. Now, I don't reject those ideas at their core. I think that making university accessible is a very important thing so that it's not reserved only for the wealthy uh, children of, um, rather children of the wealthy so that they are the only ones that have access to university. But I do think that before we start talking about free university, we need to have a fundamental changing of, of understanding as to what the role of university in our society is. It's not something that should be necessary for everyone. It's not something that we all should have to do. The opportunity for us to do it, of course, should be there, but it's definitely not a prerequisite for a successful life, and it should not be a prerequisite for a successful life. So when I was talking to Rob, he was telling me about how, you know, back in the day in America, in Canada, 
you could start working at some corporation in the mailroom right out of high school. And by the time you're 45, you work your way up into management. And by the time you retire, you're a vice president, you're an upper management of that corporate thing. And what happened is that these companies were expected to train you and, and, and improve your skills so that you find new areas of skills. Of course, working in the mailroom and moving to upper management doesn't happen in one day. It happens throughout your career. You develop these skills, you develop these attitudes, you develop um, things like that, and you worked your way up to the top. So um, that, was, that was the way things were in, in, in North America, at least. Um, and even if you didn't work your way up and you were stuck somewhere in the middle, you were still able to provide for your family. You were still able to purchase a home. You were still able to have a comfortable life um, and basically afford all the necessities without a university degree. These days, I saw a job offer the other day for a receptionist. Receptionist. I mean, one of the more basic, lower-skilled roles. Like, basically just like, you know, taking phone calls, taking notes on those phone calls, etc., etc. It's not, I'm not trying to demean receptionists out there, but like, it's not a job that requires a lot of skill or, or particulars in order to do. But that receptionist job, as one of the prerequisites, was bachelor um, in something. Bachelor's degree is preferred. Isn't that ridiculous? Like, for a job like that, what applicable skills are you going to get from a bachelor's degree? And look at this closely. It never even said bachelor of X required, bachelor of history, bachelor in political science, bachelor in whatever. It just says bachelor's degree required. That simply makes no sense. Basically, what employers are doing now is they're not treating university as a place to see oh, do you have skills or not, as university should be, right? University, you go, you learn, you develop certain skills that you later apply to your workplace. They're using it as a litmus test as to whether you would be a good applicant or not. And that's because university degrees have just become so much more prevalent in the past years, and the labor market is just so saturated that people without university degrees are just stuck so far behind people even with a degree in something that has no application to it whatsoever. So how did it become this way? Um, I think it's because of the rise of something that I call the university industrial complex. University has become way less about education and way more about money. If you look at the admittance averages into um, like state schools and uh, lower tiered uh, private universities, their admissions averages have just dropped. Back in the day, you could not get into university if you barely passed high school. If you had a 60% average or a 55% average, universities just wouldn't take you. Why? Because they knew that, you know, the likelihood of you succeeding and the likelihood of you needing a university education is very low. Whereas in the past few years, in the past few decades rather, universities have become shifted away from education and more about um, profit. If you look at private universities, they will pretty much take anyone that has passed high school. Why? Because they know that they can charge them exorbitant tuition and make money off them. It doesn't matter if they pass or don't pass. They don't care about things like that at all. Um, 
I forgot which university it, it was, but there was a state school in the U.S. that I was looking at that has something like a 54% dropout rate, which means that 54% of the applicants did not have the ability to finish their degree. That is absolutely ridiculous. The reason we have admittance averages is to test, oh, is this person capable of finishing a university degree? And this is not a judgment of people that are, you know, have lower averages in school. Everyone has different skills. Everyone has different strengths. Everyone has different interests. But what is happening is that we are all being forced into going into academia just because of the profit for it. Public universities in the U.S. are costing upwards of fifty to $60,000 a year. For an out-of-state American at the University of Michigan, mind you, this is a publicly funded university, it costs $50,000 per year. I was applying to the University of Minnesota at some point in time, and as a Manitoban, I pay in-state rates for the University of Minnesota. It was $30,000 American dollars a year. That is insane. This is a public university. The issue is that these days you need to have that higher studies in order to do anything. So you have people going out here and getting random degrees, which they have no interest in pursuing, simply so that they can get entry-level positions. For example, a lot of people with history degrees don't have any intent on pursuing history or becoming a historian whatsoever. If you wish to continue your studies in history, get a master's, PhD, become a professor, become a researcher in history, I have nothing against that. History degrees are extremely important. I'm not demeaning the value of that at all. But a lot of people are choosing to get those degrees simply so that they have something to work with. You can't do anything in history with an undergrad in history. And if you're not planning on taking further studies, you are going to be working in a field that you really that has nothing to do with what you studied. And to me, that goes against the fundamental essence of what university should be about, which is building skills that apply to your workplace. Of course, this, this cost of American universities uh, is well documented with the student loan crisis and things like that. And that's a topic for another day, but it's this entire university industrial complex that has built this crisis that's convinced everyone that they have to go to university, that has built a labor market that is fully saturated with university degrees so that people that choose to not go to university are completely messed up. Look, not everyone needs or should go to university. You're not a better or worse person or a smarter or less smart person if you have a university degree. That makes no sense. We have made university so sacred that people forget that there are other options out there. The fact that you can go and pursue the trades, that you can take an online course and become a graphic designer, the fact that you can, you know, use your computer skills and, and learn that without, without a university degree. Um, the, the true value of a university education, in my opinion, is number one, the skills that you acquire from there, it's true. There are many jobs that require university education and people should go to university for those. And number two, the actual educational value that that holds for you long-term, the fact that you can enrich yourself. So let me just conclude here. What do I think that is are some possible solutions 
to this issue within America. Number one, I think that universities need to raise their admission standards. And we need to withdraw grants or funding for public universities that don't do this and try to make profits based on exorbitant student volumes and students that have no capacity to, in order to complete a university degree. University does need to be more made more accessible, but the way to do that is not by lowering standards. Number two, trade schools and internships need to be heavily promoted. The government needs to work with labor markets, needs to work with um, trade um, institutions and things, trade unions and things like that, um, so that they heavily promote um, alternatives to university as options for other people, such as becoming a firefighter, a police officer, um, a plumber, an electrician, etc., etc. And number three, I think that employers potentially, this is on the labor market side, employers need to potentially be banned from asking for a university degree or credentials like that for entry-level positions because they are simply not required. Not everyone needs to go to university. We need to start thinking of university as an investment rather than a rite of passage. If we struggle to pay back our initial investment because we don't have a good income at the end of it and we don't have skills at the end of it, we shouldn't keep putting our money into it. We need to get rid of the university industrial complex and we need to start living our lives to the full. Yes, I definitely agree with a lot of what you said. I think universities are overhyped. We should be putting more of our time into practice, going, getting a job. That's how you learn things. I think the societal narrative that we need to go to uni definitely needs to fall. Uh, but I did want to mention that like a lot of what you mentioned are not though that big of a problem is not that big of a problem in Europe because universities are usually more affordable there. And also a lot of people don't go to uni and still get jobs. So yeah, but that's also another uh, topic for another day. Uh, depends on which country you're from. A thing that I wanted to ask you then is again, a similar question that you asked me, I feel like about elitism, because I feel like right now uh, for a lot of lower income families, a way to, you know, I guess, uh, escape from the cycle of poverty is to have uh, a university degree, especially if it's like an Ivy League school. Um, and if we make universities even more, you know, if we raise the standards, a lot of lower income students might not catch up, do not have the money to hire tutors and etc. So do you see this as a possible issue and what would you propose? I mean, the crux of, of my argument doesn't really revolve around like the five universities that are considered like the prestigious elite American schools. I'm, I'm mainly referring to just regular old universities where you can get a, a degree one, like Arizona State University, CU Boulder, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think it will drive an elitism problem. And, and, and here's why. Um, if you look at it, African-Americans have the highest university dropout rate in the country. And of course, this has to do with a broken public education system. Um, and the fact that, you know, you, they, they don't prepare you for university well, especially in these lower income communities. That being said, university should not be the only way for them to get out of the cycle of poverty. There needs to be other options. And the fact that university has become the only way for you not to be poor, the fact that paying upwards of $50,000 a year of your income 
is like the only way not to be poor is absolutely ridiculous and it's a terrible state of affairs and there needs to be other options. Alright, so that wraps up episode 6 of Wake Up Call. Uh, I had a great time chatting about democracy today. Complaining, figuring out what's wrong with it, and my favorite thing, proposing some solutions. Thank you so much for Pearson for joining us. Their expertise were extremely valuable for us, and their opinions and their perspective as a party member, I think, added a lot to this conversation. Uh, as usual, I'm going to tell you, um, hit us up on Instagram at wakeupcallpodcasts with underscores in between every word, and check us out on YouTube at wakeupcall with Vishwa and Milda. Uh, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you all in a couple weeks.